that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, joined today by my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, and across the glass, all the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, Dunmore, Pennsylvania, really. I must be official because... You can't say Scranton. you got to say Dunmore. (laughs) There's such a huge difference. It's like New York to L.A. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yes, yes. Exactly, yes. It's a big difference, Pat. You can definitely tell when you're going between one to the other, right? Like, you'll definitely know. Oh, yeah. It's the truth. The the roads feel different. You don't hit as many potholes. Yeah. That's true. But I do want to say our esteemed associate producer, Miss Stephanie Longo, amongst her many other accolades and job descriptions, right? Stephanie's also a published historian, and she is currently undertaking yet another degree, which she's had uh, many of them and many uh, special certifications. She might be the most educated person I know. But recently, Stephanie was, how do I say this, surprised to find out she had been elected to a position within the City, town, whatever, of Dunmore, Pennsylvania, which is a very Italian-American enclave right on the border of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where we all know Stephanie lives because two of her books are on the Italians of northeastern Pennsylvania and Scranton. And um, Stephanie, what exactly were you elected to, and how did that come about? Because Yeah, I don't know what happened. Um, <laughs> I was elected to be the inspector of elections for Dunmore, Ward 3, Section 2, or however that works. And um, it was a write-in. Someone apparently wrote my name in, and I got a letter last week saying, congratulations, you were elected. And I was completely dumbfounded because neither my mother nor myself voted for me, and that's the only two people I would imagine voting for me. (laughs) That's really bad. Your mother didn't even vote for you? No, well, but to be fair, on the that's a pretty big indictment. But, <laughs> I wasn't you're, on the ballot. Your mother? I know your mother. Whoa. This is saying a lot. But you weren't soliciting for votes, though. No, I was not on the ballot. You were not electioneering. You didn't ask anybody no. to do that. So some person has surprised you. Yes. Because what was the, the minimum required votes is what, five votes you had to get? I think so. I mean, there were no go with Longo signs through Dunmore saying to put me into this position. So I don't know what's going on. And John and Pat, you guys know how busy I am with school and work and life in general. So I would not. Have- I just know like in New Jersey, they have PBA cards <laughs> for the cops. And now if I ever get caught speeding <laughs> Or, I don't know, littering <laughs> between Dunmore and Scranton. Jaywalking, yeah. I know, the jaywalking. I know what name I'm going to drop. Oh, no. It's done. Yeah, that's going to get you. Sure. You know, the election certifier of Ward 7, District 9. That's amazing. This is, John, you always try to spin this as the St. Olaf moment of the show. But <laughs> I, I want to take it one step further and say this is like, the Lake Wolbegon of, of Prairie Home Companion. Yes, it is. If we, if we ever could get Floyd Vivino to do the Italian-American Prairie Home Companion, <laughs> I guess I, I always had that dream of the Italian-American NPR. I keep dropping, you know, our show. Like, you know, we'd have our own NPR. We could do the Italian-American version of Prairie Home Companion. I guess we'd have, what, letters from Dunmore? <laughs> I love it. I mean, we'd have to change the name a little, but, you know. You can't change Dunmore. 
Uh, you couldn't make this up. No. But our guest also has a connection to Dunmore Path. Yes. Because he's done such extensive research on Dunmore. You know, I have a huge connection to Dunmore on my father's side. I know. All my father's family before the 20s on my Irish side all went to Scranton and Dunmore. I'm probably related to 90% of school. And that's not a joke. We always say we want to find a town that we can colonize for the Italian-American compound. It's starting to sound like Stephanie may have the political end to do this. So <laughs> maybe it's Dunmore. And it's already there. Yeah, it's already there. It's already very Italian-American. Number 12. And it's appropriate that our guest today does have some connection because he's done a lot of research on the Dunmore Italian-American population. But really, the reason that we have asked him here today is because he's written the seminal book on a topic that comes up today of all days. As this goes to air, it's December 7th, 2021, which makes it the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. And I think we still live in a world where the majority of people, I hope in our generation at least, hear December 7th on the calendar and think of Pearl Harbor and the beginning of our U.S. engagement in World War II. And our guest, Peter Belmonte, is the author of Italian Americans in World War II, a book that came out 20 years ago now in 2001, amongst his many books on the war. And he's actually working currently on a multi-volume history of Italian Americans in World War I, which I think is very, very interesting, an underserved topic for sure. But today we really want to talk about the Italian American experience in World War II as we reflect on 80 years since our nation went into probably its finest moment, I, I think it's safe to say. So, Peter, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. We're really happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I'm very happy that you invited me. And you, you yourself are a, a veteran of Operation Desert Storm. Yes. You're a retired U.S. Air Force officer, author, yes. and historian. So this is probably something very personal to you, this book. Tell us now, reflecting first and foremost 20 years on the book, what made you write it, and what was the scholarship around the Italian-American experience in World War II when you decided to do it? Because 20 years is a nice anniversary in and of itself, and uh, we have been, I'm, I'm 38, so I grew up in an, an Italian-American community where we were talking a lot about the fact that our community was the largest portion of the armed services in World War II, that our community had members in internment camps during the war, you know, the don't speak the enemy language, all of these themes. I grew up with them. I probably grew up with them in part because you decided to write this book. What was the scholarship around our experience like when you set out to do this? Well, really, when I wrote it, there wasn't anything really devoted, not, not a whole lot devoted just to that topic. You would find memoirs of Italian-American soldiers. They, of course, were referred to in any kind of unit history simply because they were in every unit. So you would find them in lists of casualties or you'd find them in lists of men who were decorated or, or uh, little excerpts of, of blurbs of, of their experiences. And I didn't set out to actually write a book about Italian-Americans in World War II. I was always interested in ethnic history, Italian-American history in particular, my family history, and military history. So they all kind of coalesced into the one book. But I originally wanted to do a book about Italians in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is where my mother's family settled in the uh, early 1900s. Yeah, but there's a lot of Calabrese people in Kenosha. A, a lot of Calabrese, yeah. We have a, a listener, Heather is from Kenosha. There's a big Mount Carmel. We, yeah, we do have very strong Wisconsin connections on the show. And they have a big feast for Lady of Mount Carmel in Kenosha. I, and I used to go to that all the time as a, as a kid. Um, <clears throat> I drove by there just a few days ago, showing my own family where my, my grandparents uh, lived. But uh, 
I originally wanted to do that book. Uh, and then as I, and I got a sort of a verbal contract from Arcadia to do that book. But then as I started, <laughs> I started gathering just offhand, firsthand reminiscences of Italian veterans. I find them online. I'd, I'd look at unit history websites and veterans websites. And I'd say, oh, there's an Italian name, you know, cause that's, it's pretty easy sometimes to determine who, <laughs> what surname is Italian. And if they had any kind of a contact information, whether it's an email, and, you know, these are older men at the time, even 20 years ago, uh, but they, many of them had emails, they had phone numbers, if they had snail mail, I, I would write to them and almost all of them replied. And I started gathering this and I said, you know what, I'd rather just shift my focus. And I asked Arcadia if, hey, can I do Italian Americans World War II? Because I was able to, I think, assemble a pretty good range of, of types of service and things like that. And uh, it was very, very pleasurable to do this because I would call these guys out of the blue and say, hey, I'm at the time I was in the Air Force. I was a major. I said, this is Major Belmonte, you know, calling from you know wherever I was and I'm doing this. And I was wondering if if I could ask you some questions. And what really surprised me, I'd say, hey, I need a lot of photos for this book. Do you have anything at all you could send me or loan me? I'll take good care of them. I'll copy them. I'll send them back. And they unhesitatingly sent, you know, the precious snapshots and photographs. And, um, but I think, I think the result is a pretty good cross sampling of Italian-Americans. It's not the definitive book on Italian-Americans World War II needs to be done. And it would be a, much thicker <laughs> than my book. Uh, but it, it was enjoyable, and I think it was a very, uh, a very good, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but maybe an, a catalyst for other research. Yeah, I think it's very safe to say catalyst is the right word. I, you know, I grew up with a grandfather who had served in the war, and all of his brothers and cousins and my grandmother's nephews and you know, every male in the family that was of appropriate age. And uh, I rarely heard my grandfather speak about his experience and I think that that's a part of it too I think that, that generation came home and didn't really share as much as um, now we sort of expect our veterans to to share and engage and go through a process and uh, it was only later in my grandfather's life that I would get stories really that my, my father who was also a veteran would coax out of him or had coaxed out of him in their time alone together and would share with us. And, you know, that was sort of my very basic young American from the eighties view of the second world war, right? The good guys went out, they won this war, came home and the world was a better place. And it all of course starts 80 years ago today in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, which is uh, still obviously an incredible national monument, one that I've gotten to visit uh, with my wife in, in our one trip out to Hawaii. It was a very special experience for us. We got to meet uh, a Hawaiian gentleman who had survived the attack and still lived locally. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Pearl Harbor as the anniversary is today, but also because I think it's very telling around the real situation on the ground, the real history People don't, I think, talk about it now. The narrative is one of sort of, you know, here come the, the good Americans. But in fact, there was a lot of hesitancy for our country to get involved in a war that was already raging on most continents. You know, if you if you track backwards to 1937 and the Japanese invasion of China or 1939 and the outbreak of war in Europe, the U.S., was very hesitant to get involved. And it's only this uh, unprecedented uh, surprise attack that musters the 
U.S. government obviously has to declare war there and then declares war against Japan. And I think a day or two later, Italy and Germany declare war on the United States. But, you know, we talk a lot on the show about the fact that there was real support throughout the U.S. for Germany and Italy even before the Second World War. And in the early days of the Second World War, there's a huge German-American population was the largest ethnic group, might still be the largest ethnic group in the country today. Yes, they still are. They still are, right? They German still Americans? are, correct. And, you know, at that point, many of them were living in parts of the country where they were still speaking German on a regular basis, and they were very attached. There was active chapters. Didn't Lawrence Welk grow up in a community in Wisconsin? It was North he, Dakota. A, a North Dakota? Yeah, North yes. Dakota. I don't know anymore because of Spanish, but North Dakota was one of the states in the country where the second most spoken language after English was still German. Yeah, I think Absolutely. it might be it might be third now. But yeah, they were all German speak. Yeah. Lawrence Welk grew up in this country being a I guess you'd almost say monolingual German speaker until he was of age. We talk a lot about the camps where the Italians and the Japanese were brought during World War II. Here in northeastern Pennsylvania, because of the heavy German population, there were actually camps out by Toby Hanna, which you come through when you're coming out from New York to this area. And people don't realize that there was such a big German population and some of the Germans were actually brought in as well. And that's like a hidden part of World War II history, or even just for, I don't know, Pete, if you've studied this in your research, but with the Italian soldiers who were brought to the different military bases, I know here in Pennsylvania, Letterkenny had them. The one podcast I would go to war on is my grandmother's first cousin was in an Italian POW camp in New Jersey. My grandmother said it was a resort. Yeah, they said that about Letterkenny, too. I wish to God I could have I could have a tape of my grandmother going off. My grandmother said those Italian soldiers want to resort. Yeah, there's a lot about Letterkenny saying that. But I mean, I think that when we get to the later phases of the conversation around the actual war and we have POWs coming over from you know Italy, Germany, we have Italian Americans or, or resident aliens who are being put into camps, obviously, in, in the early phases of the war. What I want to get to with Peter is the, the, the pre-war situation. I, explain a little bit about what the situation for Italian-Americans was in the 20 years leading up to war, because you know there was a great impact of fascism felt here in the United States, a lot of investment from the Mussolini government in creating this sense of diaspora. Where were Italian-Americans in, in the uh, greater society and also in our trajectory as uh, uh, an assimilating ethnic group? in the days before Pearl Harbor? Yeah, and that's a very good, uh, very good point and a good question. And, and, and let me just go back to these World War I Italian-American soldiers. Many of them, of course, English was not their first language. Many of them couldn't speak English when they went in. And that's a fact. Of course, in the, in the years before Pearl Harbor, 1920s and 1930s, uh, that was the coming of age of the, the people that came in the 1890s and early 1900s. So in the teens and in the 20s, you had that generation of uh, Italian-Americans born in the United States that came of age. They were going to fight in World War II. Surely there were other men uh, and women who immigrated and were actually from, born in Italy and, and fought in World War II. But the majority of those were born in the United States. Some of them had parents that were born in the United States in the very early 1900s or, or in the 1890s. Um, so it was, a, a, the ethnicity was in some ways still a Calabrese, a Sicilian, a Neapolitan, and a, you know, whatever, Northern Italian, Piemontese, whatever. Uh, but there was also a beginning of a sort of a greater uh, Italian awareness. And, 
And that's what gets back to Mussolini, right? Greater Italy. We're all Italians. I know you've been in America for 40 years, but you're you're an Italian. Um, oh, he I agree with you, Peter. Yeah. I spoke to a lot of firsthand sources, some of them in my family, some people that I knew who experienced the Mussolini rallies that went on in New York and New Jersey yeah. in the 30s. And they were transformative. And they were very popular. Yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. My grandma's cousins gave gold to the campaign in Ethiopia. I knew uh, Red Mike's band that used to play um, fundraisers up on the grounds of Villa Walsh. They were huge, but they definitely did give a concept, I think, of the first time I concur with you in uh, Italians as a nationality. Yeah, I would think so. And, and of course, with that came the negative aspects of it that we don't we don't like today and cause trouble back then. But in the, in the 30s, that was the thing. You know, I mean, uh, you think about Italo Balbo flying to Chicago. Yeah. Do you know what I think the, gen- the general consensus was? And I hope one day we could do an episode or episodes on this. I think the huge attraction to Mussolini was that the Italian-Americans, the Italians who were born in Italy, had immigrated here thought that he was going to be able to transform the country into a modern country, roads, schools, indoor plumbing. They thought that Italy needed a strong man to kind of get Italy into the 20th century. And he was the guy to do it. Yeah. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. Yeah, I mean, I think that the appeal to an evolving and modernizing Italy is an obvious one here in the United States. And I also think it's important to point out that it's not until 1924 and the change in immigration law yeah. that people are really settling here permanently. So from 18, you know, 70s and then the 90s when it really begins to peak and it, it peaks between 1890 and 1920, you have people that are coming here in massive numbers. And for many of them, there's still the sense that they may eventually go back. Yeah. So seeing a, a modernizing Italy in the years between 22 and let's say 36 and 38, I think most people thought they might go back. And then 1924, the laws changed. People are staying here. So it's this sense of connection to Italy is, is so much greater than it is today, as you point out. I would imagine many of them still felt uh, a foot in the old country. Sure. Yeah. And, and many Italian-American veterans of World War One went back to Italy. Many of them became citizens during their service in, in the American army in World War I and went back to Italy. Some lost their citizenship. And if you look in the Pennsylvania archives, you'll see many Calabres who filled out their forms for Pennsylvania veterans bonus in 1934, who were in Italy and had the uh, American Legion branch in Italy certify their service. There was an American Legion branch in Italy after World War One, and it was active even through World War Two. Now, how in, I, you know that boggles my mind that you have an American Legion. You know. Yeah, yeah, I have some of that in my own records. Yeah, there you go. Italians and Hungarians, or is Italian and Slovaks? I think Italians and Hungarians had the highest rate of return of any immigrant group. Yes. Wow. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So you have this assimilating community, the first generation of people born here now many who have come over like my grandfather as young kids in the 20s, 30s. And then on December 7th, 1941, as the U.S. has sort of tiptoed around its involvement and, and sort of, you know, balanced, right, because you have the Lend-Lease Act, you have a kind of support, even though we're a neutral country for the British and 
at least in terms of supplies and resources. But December 7th comes, and the entire nation, I think it's safe to say, is rallied around the idea that no matter where your background is from, we are now a country at war with the Axis powers. And uh, like I say, you know, Japan clearly declares war on the United States, and then a few days later, so do Italy and Germany. So let's talk a little bit about the Italian-American experience during the subsequent three and a half, four years that will make up the experience of World War II for our country. First and foremost, let's talk about the experience on the ground for the men and women who serve, because obviously there are men and women serving, and then for the home front, the people that are still here. Tell us about the numbers of Italian-Americans that served, some of the famous stories that have come down, like John Bazalone, maybe you could speak about, and and kind of what the general experience was, if, if there is one. Probably there's no typical uh, Italian-American experience. It probably would have been more a typical American soldier, sailor, airman, marine experience. Um, of course, numbers, I've heard 1,500,000, 1,700,000. If we look at a total of about 14 to 16 million servicemen and women, maybe about 10%. I don't think, and this goes back again to World War I, I don't think the government kept exactly those kinds of records. Certainly they kept track of where a man or woman was born, but I don't think they tabulate. I may be wrong in this. I've never seen an actual tabulation of, gee, we went through and we asked the servicemen, do you consider yourself Italian American, Spanish American, Hungarian, you know, whatever. And here's the results. But I don't think we're wrong if we say about 10% uh, in World War II were uh, of Italian American descent. And there again, you have another question. What's an Italian American? Somebody born, somebody's parents were born there, probably for a World War II veteran, it would have been a few who were actually born there. Uh, the great many who had probably both parents or at least one parent born there and several who had maybe grandparents born there who, who came. You know, I heard it said many times, the boys left as Italians and they came home as Americans. That's probably true. Yeah. And I think that the greatest thing that the war did in the sense of our America, I'll say Americanization integration is the fact that it showed the rest of Americans who we were. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that all these, you know, if you had some kid from Oklahoma or some kid from Texas or some kid from New Mexico or kid from North Dakota, the first Italian American he met was the kid in the unit with him in World War Two. And I think that if you see, take the Joe DiMaggio Life magazine interview, that's like the very late 30s. It's like 1939, 1941. It's a caricature. You know, it talks about, you know, Joe DiMaggio, you know, he's not all that bad. You know, he prefers Chinese food over Italian food. Right. Um, and it talks about like the smell of garlic and all this other stuff. But then if you take our presence in media after the war, it's Jimmy Durante and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. We became cool. And I think if you look at, you know, Mr. Bacigalup, that's in the Abbott and Costello films. And if you look at, you know, um, was it Mr. Monacati, who's in um, Jackie Gleason, the Honeymooners? Yeah, Mrs. Monacati. Mrs. Upstairs, Monacati yeah. upstairs. I think that all of a sudden, the golden age of Italian-American media, American presence in the media comes out. You know, these guys, when they're in their 40s, Topo Gijo was on Ed Sullivan. And I think a huge part of that is, even for the guy who's in North Dakota, he remembered Tony from New York or Frankie from Boston. Right. Or, you know, Iggy from Philly. He remembered the Italian kid that he was in the unit with that kind of made him laugh or had a funny accent or said funny things. And yeah. I think that the war, as horrific as it was, was that road 
that brought us into the center of Italian American culture and maybe actually caused the beginning of an assimilation that we are trying now to tell people hold on to their culture. You know, a, a comment that probably would have been much less understandable in the 30s. My own book, of course, the name of it, Italian Americans World War II. And when I was interviewing one of the men, Samuel Lombardo, born in Calabria, and he served as an officer in the, in the American army. And I, I told him, sir, uh, you know, this is going to be Italian Americans. And what well, I actually wrote to him, it's going to be Italian Americans in World War II. He chided me. <laughs> he wrote back and said, why are you calling it Italian? We were Americans. You know, like, and, and I said, yes, sir. You know, but, um, and, and so there was that. And I think that was that process. Maybe for an Italian guy, maybe he just, you know what? I don't look at me as an enemy alien serving in, Amer in the American army. I'm an American officer. Uh, I'm an American soldier. Yeah. I, I have an anecdote that I love um, from my friend's father who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was a small, scruffy kid, um, small of stature from Orange, New Jersey. He gets into the Marine Rangers. And they were asking him all kinds of questions. And one of them was, you know, you know, if you saw Mussolini, you know, would you bayonet him? You know, all these kind of things. He goes, if I saw my mother, I would. He said, and the reason was he felt he had to constantly prove that he was a loyal American. Yeah. He and a Sicilian kid from Louisiana were the only two Italians in that whole company. So they were in basic training. And um, so the kid from Orange collapses from exhaustion. He kind of like just falls down, sits down. And the Italian kid, the Sicilian kid from Louisiana, they had made a friendship because they're the only two Italian kids, um, says to him, you got to get up. You got to keep running. Yeah. This is what got me. He said, they're going to judge all of us on how we perform here. Coming from an 18-year-old Sicilian kid from Louisiana, think of how profound it is. They're going to yeah. judge us all on how we perform here. That's very powerful. That is. Yeah, and I know they did ask those kind of questions. How would you feel about, you know, fighting whomever? And I, one of the one of the men I interviewed, you know, they asked him that and he said, I, I'm not too happy to kill anybody, you know, let alone, whether it's Italian or whomever. So, uh, you know, that's probably more of their uh, yeah. actual honesty, you know, experience there. But uh, they, they did serve in all kinds of units. Um, you know, we talk about the 13. There's actually 14. A lot of lists have 13 Italian Americans who won the Medal of Honor. There's 14. Uh, and here I'll get I'll talk John, about the one. Who's John Basilione. John Basilione. Yeah. Well, he's one. If you he's don't know, and, if you're uh, a prisoner. And you don't know who he is. Stop you better, whatever you, you are doing. Yeah. Stop. Just stop it. Just stop whatever you were doing and read about him immediately. Yeah. John Basilion was the most decorated American enlisted personnel in the Second World War. Am I correct with that? I don't know if he was the most decorated. I but, think he uh, was. I know he was called a one-man arm. I think he was. I'm going to wager Marines, off the but... top of my head yeah, he... that he was the most decorated. Yeah. And he was also yeah. from he was from Raritan, New Jersey. They yeah, still have New a parade Jersey. there for him. But yep. He was, I'm yeah. going to bet, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'm going to bet that he was the most decorated service personnel, service member in the Second World War. Well, let me also put in a plug for uh, Vito Bertoldo from Illinois. I was uh, privileged to be a part of a Netflix documentary on people, men, in this case it was men that won the Medal of Honor. And Vito Bertoldo was one of them. He was in the 42nd Infantry Division um, and he won the Medal of Honor, earned the Medal of Honor. And uh, he's another one. He was another sort of a one-man army um, for what he did. And I won't get into the whole thing, but watch the Netflix special. You'll see me, one, on there. But 
we have Gino Murley here from Peckville, yeah, Pennsylvania, and I became yep. very close friends with his late wife, Mary, as well as his sister, Emma, when I was doing the research for my own work. And he was another one of those one man armies with what he did yeah. in Belgium. And people don't realize it when they come here, there's a museum in his honor at the Valley Library in Peckville, where you could see his medal, see some of the things that he brought back. And for us here in the area, we're just so proud of that because yeah. you don't realize that the big war hero that you're celebrating is an Italian American. Our veteran center is named after him. There's a monument for him on our square. And we're really proud of that. And I think that that's a testament. We just gave how many names of Italian Americans that received this amazing honor in World War II. Yep. And this is something that should be celebrated. We need to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. But I have such a fear because I teach college. These kids have no concept of the war because their grandparents are baby boomers. They never met the World War II generation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I lived with my grandmother my entire life. I could tell you so many stories about the war. And it had such an, it has an effect on me mentally because I heard about it constantly from her. And sad stories about my uncles and stuff that she went through. And I could go on and on. If you don't have that first person experience to talk with someone who lived through it, it becomes history, not a living history, but the history of a book. And I feel that, you know, the, this binding action on the United States that really maybe it was almost the birthing of a new nation of America's participation in World War II in the aftermath. But what, what Americans went through, what Italian Americans went through, these kids have no concept. They don't know when World War II happened, who participated, besides the fact that our educational system is abysmal and an abomination and that history is not taught. They have no concept of all the war. Yeah. For the kids now, like you said, it would be their great grandfathers or great grandmothers who served. And many of them are, are around. Yes. But let's face it. Most of the times the kids will maybe get it from their grandparents who say, oh, yeah, dad told me this. Yeah. yeah. But think about it. I'm teaching kids who are now 20. Right. Yeah. So. If, if, if they ever met anybody where they were old enough to kind of get it, um, who served in World War II, they weren't old, they were ancient. Yes. I mean, if, if you were 20 years old at Pearl Harbor, you're 100 today. Right. You know, as I started to figure out that time was taking them from us, whenever I would meet somebody who was of World War II generation age, I always asked them the same question. Where were you when you heard about Pearl Harbor? Yeah. And not one of them skipped a beat. They all knew right. them. They could immediately yeah. tell you where they were. Defining, it was, like you said, it's a defining moment yeah, it was with in the, their lives and in the nation. What the Kennedy assassination was to the boomers, Pearl Harbor was to the World War II generation. I think it's almost like, you know, to my generation, Generation X, I think September 11th, everyone can tell you exactly where they were when the planes went into, and especially, I lived, I saw it. I lived here. Um it was absolutely defining to them. And, and kids today have a total, and maybe you can't help it. You know, that's what happens in history. I'm sure that there were people in the 20s and 30s who were saying the same thing about Civil War veterans as they were dying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This holiday season, love and laugh with Mediaset Italia. Just in time for family gatherings and festive spirit, Mediaset has brand new shows and familiar favorites, including Laugh Out Loud with hosts Claudio Bizio and Vanessa Incontrada on Italy's most beloved stand-up comedy show, Zelig. 
New editions are airing Thursday, December 26th, 28th, and 30th at 8.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. New Drama Wednesdays at 8.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Storia di una Familia per Bene, where teenagers Maria and Michele fall madly in love, only their families are huge rivals. And who doesn't love pranking celebrities? Italy's brightest showbiz stars get hoodwinked on Scherzi a parte, Tuesdays at 8.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Plus, we have all your favorites. Le Iene, Grande Fratello Vip, Verissimo, Uomini e Donne, and Amici. Give yourself the gift of the best in Italian entertainment and call your local television provider to ask for Mediaset Italia today. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because if you think about, you talk about the Civil War, right? The Civil War had, in many ways, faded in popular consciousness until the 100th anniversary celebrations in the 60s kind of built an industry around it. And you mm-hmm. had, you know, all of these different public events and merchandise and things like that. And, you know, kids that had grown up playing with little World War II toy soldiers or cowboys and Indians now were buying plastic play sets of the Civil War. And so, right. you, you know, you wonder where this concept of World War II will evolve over time for younger generations, you know, will we see, I, I think that the civilian military gap post Vietnam makes it a lot harder to imagine kids 20 years from now, when we look back at the hundredth anniversary of World War II going out and buying, you know, World War II play sets, right? I think we just have a different approach to this stuff in yeah. society. But I do think growing up in a family where, you know, we ate macaroni every Sunday with my grandfather who had served or his brothers who had served and things like that, we have a different approach to this. It is more definitional to who we are than any subsequent generations that are going to come. And I think, Pat, you make a great point. You know, you always say something when we talk about the Civil War that I find interesting. Uh, you know, going into the Civil War, people referred to the United States. Are. Are. The, are right. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, United, the United States are. The United States are a collection of different independent polities. And afterwards, the United States is. It's this one yeah. country. And I think you say very wisely, World War II is sort of the cradle of a new America, of a global America, right? America engaged in the world. You know, we forget how isolationist this country was prior to World War One, and how much even more isolationist it was prior to World War Two. You know, we, yeah. you, you've got a whole America First movement going on, a lot of resistance, um, you know, Charles Lindbergh and all this stuff. So... America as a nation, thinking of itself as a global player and participant, obviously comes out of World War II as the leading global superpower, even during the Cold War. It's interesting to talk a little bit about the home front experience and what what it did for our Italian-American community, yeah. as Pat points out, this this ascendancy and this acceptance, because let's not forget, even though you know, somewhere near 10%, the, the largest portion of the, of the armed forces is Italian-American and people are meeting Italian-Americans for the first time, you also have a good portion of the theater of war going on between the invasion of Sicily and the march up Italy. So you have a lot of people of all different backgrounds who have some familiarity with Italy for the first time, who have a a memory of service there and have interacted with Italians and have seen Italian Americans in their unit interacting with Italians. You know, my, my grandfather, uh, the one story that, that we, we, Oh, I, we always tell my family is his service through the invasion of North Africa, Sicily, and then Italy, and goes fighting through his own hometown. And, uh, you know, a lot of people had that experience. I, I think it, it changed a lot for what it meant, uh, what, what Italy meant to the, to the majority of the country, too, having some service there, perhaps. Let's talk for a moment about the 
difficulties that were faced. You know, we've talked about it on the show before, the internment of Italian-Americans during the war, enemy aliens, uh, uh, particularly this, um, what's become a very popular, um, I don't know, image of, of the home front experience, which is don't speak the enemy language. What was the sentiment that you gathered from your interviews around people that were, were home here and not overseas fighting? I didn't do so much uh, interview to, uh, interviews of the people that uh, stayed home. But I do know, as you said, about the uh, the internment of some people. I don't want to, that's a part of history I don't want to understate, but I don't want to overstate it either. Right. Suffice to say, it, I don't want to ignore it, which I think it had, it had been until people like you and others are bringing this out. And this business about confiscating radios, you can't have this kind of radio. You can't live within this distance of, you know, whatever. And we talk about Joe DiMaggio's father and his fishing boats and things like this. So it did have an impact. Um, I tried to think about my own, you know, my own family in the mid middle West and in, in Kenosha and in uh, Northern Illinois, you know, with their, one of the sons and, and other cousins in the military service. I know my grandmother became a citizen at that time while her son was, was uh, overseas in, in the American army. So others, I think, did that kind of thing. I think there was a, a greater pull toward, and we discussed this earlier, toward patriotism, toward, toward America, toward becoming an American. I have a great story that someone told me. In Morris County, New Jersey, there was um, a man who applied for citizenship. And I guess at that time, you had to appear before a judge, I guess the county judge. And um, there was the questioning. I guess that's how the process worked. And they would question you and, and then they would grant you the citizenship. And the guy was nervous and the guy was fumbling. And the Irish American judge said to this Italian immigrant who's speaking broken English and obviously nervous, do you have any boys in the service? And he said, two. He goes, don't worry. He said something like, you know, that's, all the, that's the only question I need to ask you. And made the guy a citizen right then and there. Wow. That was the end of the questioning. Wow. So I think that I, I think that did that was, I mean, I don't know how widespread something exactly like that was, but I think there was that that notion, again, like a good war. You know, of course, you know, all the wars are bad, but I mean, it was a war that that all Americans, whether you were a recent immigrant or your family came over Jamestown, all Americans could at least understand and get behind. And so I think that that helped. I mean, that helped in the sense of acceptance, even though there was, st- you know, there's still discrimination. But I think I think it helped in a general sense. I'm going to jump in with a tiny story as well. So my grandfather fought in World War II, and it was something that he was extremely, extremely proud of um, to the point where he did not request to be buried with my grandmother when he died. He actually wanted to be buried in the veterans plot in our local cemetery. But to the point with the citizenship, he got derivative citizenship because my great-grandfather had already declared American citizenship when he got here. And um, grandpa was a citizen before he ever set foot on American soil, except that to fight in World War II, he insisted, and we have it, on getting a certificate of derivative citizenship with his photo, his signature, whatever he can do to prove I am a proud American. And for him, being a veteran and serving and doing this was so important. And the rest of the family followed suit. My aunt did it and all the other kids who had derivative citizenship because they wanted to give him that vote of confidence. They all got their derivative citizenship papers, but with their photo on it so they could prove we're proud to be American and we're proud to be here. And I think that's just an amazing thing to see. I wonder how much that impacted their love for Italy. 
I think many people were torn. I was born there or my parents were born there, but I'm here. I'm, you know, grandpa was extremely proud. I mean, you know, I would not, I would not be here with you today if it wasn't for my grandfather. I will say that right now, his Guardier's heritage to him was the most important thing, but we found out that he actually fought my great uncle who stayed behind in Guardia. He ended up serving for Italy. And obviously at that point they were enemies and his brother was on the enemy side. And I wish that my grandfather was here so I could ask him, how did that make you feel? And when Uncle Angelo finally made it to the United States, they never really were close. And I wonder if that had something to do with that because my grandfather felt this very strong tie to both countries where I'm Italian, I'm Guardiese, I'm going to be that until the day I die, and I'm going to love it for forever. But I'm also American, I'm very proud to be American. And like I said, he insisted upon being buried with the veterans and not with my grandmother, because that was something so important to him that he served this country. And you have to wonder, how did he treat his brother? And how did he feel about that when they finally did reunite in the 1960s, when Uncle Angelo did make it over here? And what was the feeling? From what I understand, all the Americans on that end of it, the ones who are already here, they weren't that close to him for it. And I have to wonder, is it because he fought the other side in World War II? That's the big crux of the Second World War experience for us, right? I mean, the World War I being what it is, it's still one in which, you know, I, I collect all this stuff, right? So you see all these postcards and posters of Italian soldiers and American soldiers and, you know, welcome to the, to the struggle together and united for liberty. And, you know, Italy's an ally, and here Italy's the enemy, or at least one of the enemies. And uh, you have soldiers fighting through their own hometown against their own family. You have this battle for the liberation of Italy and this sense of uh, saviorism, I guess. You know, the U.S. going in and, and saving Italy and saving democracy there and liberty there. And so I, I think there's a an unprecedented experience because... You know, German Americans, on the average, uh, Japanese Americans share in this with us and where they were in their trajectory. I think German Americans are far more accepted and assimilated at this point and had been through a war against Germany 20 years earlier. Because World War One broke them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So for us, I mean, maybe if you compare the German American experience in World War One to the Italian American experience here in World War Two, there, there's those, that overlap. But yeah, I think this is unprecedented for us and a, a very unique social experience that does recreate America and recreate the Italian-American experience. I've always said the Italian-American community that goes into World War II is 180 degrees difference from the one that comes out of it. Um, I do want to mention, you know, some of the kind of historical trivia we talk about. You know, we I noticed we've said many times the service men and women. We're seeing much more equity when it comes to research around the role of women in the Second World War, both overseas and on the home front. Uh, You know, the, the sort of piece of little fun trivia is the model and basis for Rosie the Riveter, I believe, was an Italian-American, if I'm right. I don't remember yeah. the name. I think that's correct. I don't remember You're the right. name either, but I think that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Steph, you've done a lot of research on the role of women and Italian-American women in World War II, correct? Um, I've done research on women in World War II. Um, my Aunt Louise, who's coincidentally buried next to my grandmother, um, we found out just on a lark on genealogy.com that she was a member of the Women's Army Corps during World War II. And nobody knew this. She died in 1949. My mother was one year old, so she clearly didn't know. And since I found that out on genealogy research, I've come to just such a different 
appreciation of Aunt Louise's story and learning, you know, she enlisted, she went and did this, she went through basic training. She, I, I believe she was in Georgia when she had her training and I didn't know this, this put such a different perspective as to who she was as a person. And I ended up reading um, this woman's diary and um, she was a woman from Alabama that also served in the WAX, the Women's Army Corps. And she wrote a diary about the experiences just through the training and through everything. I mean, these women did so much for the country and it's kind of a hidden history if you stop and think about it because women's role in World War II isn't discussed as much and to see what they've done um, right now we're trying to get enough of information on Aunt Louise so we could get a military designation on her grave site they didn't do those at the time you got my grandma's best friend growing up who lived upstairs from her who was Bade's joined the wax, the Women's Army Corps. My grandmother always got a kick out of the fact that she joined the wax. But I'm going to tell you why they were that way. Those girls who joined the wax because they were not in combat always felt that they couldn't take any credit for anything because what they had done was so insignificant in their opinion compared to the guys who were in combat and came home messed up, missing limbs, uh, crippled, blind, lost or lost their lives. And I think they, it was almost like survivor's guilt. They were part of the military, but because they themselves had not seen combat, they had this feeling of what am I to say what I did during the war when these guys were in combat? So I think that that is why, even like I said, from uh, Amoya, Francie Amoya, my grandma's best friend, that's why there was this kind of, well, we were only doing so little, you know, we were doing nothing compared to what the boys were doing. So I think that's why there was a self-deprecation on their end. I think you're right, Pat. Those women just had such a um, a sense of what they that what they had done was so little compared to what the boys had done, and they went in because they wanted to see their brothers yeah. and their boyfriends and their cousins come home, and they wanted to do whatever they could do to make sure that that happened. Anything they could do. Yeah. Every one of the women who served were volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, they weren't drafted, and um, and that goes for even in volunteer positions, maybe Red Cross. And I guess harkens back to World War One. Also, Salvation Army, Red Cross, these kind of things that, that helped soldiers. Uh, and in uh, later in World War Two, of course, uh, military members all volunteered for the women. If you read this woman's diary, and if any listener is interested in checking it out, send me a message, and I will make sure that I have the book title for you. Uh, she served as someone in the photography developing department on the base so she would help with developing the pictures that they took in combat or of whatever they were doing for records and she didn't think that she was doing much but she really did do something because those photographs ended up becoming some of the history that we have of world war ii and if you read the the diary you just get this sense of she knew she was doing something positive for the country and she was very proud of it but she didn't see herself as doing it. She just felt like it was her duty. And I felt like that was the overriding feeling that I got when I was reading her work, as well as some of the research that I've done on the wax just in World War II, that they're just trying to do what they can to help the country. Now I'm at the point, and I've told John about this, I end up purchasing photos off of eBay of the wax that I find. I found Italian-American wax in front of a statue of Columbus in Philadelphia during the war. (laughs) And I was like, I can't let anybody else have this. So it's here in my house because I don't want anything happening. I don't want anybody destroying these things. And I feel like it was so important to my aunt to be a part of this that 
all of these women in a way are her sisters and you have to celebrate that as well. I had no idea until I found out that my aunt was in the wax, that the wax even existed and shame on us for not celebrating that and making that more well-known. And now that I know about it, I'm just so unbelievably proud of all of these women for doing that. And their contributions were very valid. Well, I think that that's the, that's kind of the theme of the whole episode here as we draw to a close, which is, you know, this was a transformative experience for all Americans and Italian Americans as we focus here on the show, primarily because of a sense of duty, right? If we look back 80 years ago today on an unprecedented and horrific attack that occurred, what it meant to all Americans in terms of their identity, of all ethnic groups, what it meant in terms of service, the, the word that keeps coming up is duty. And I think both the men and women who served in the armed forces or in the uh, WAC or the supplementary forces or the people who did their part here on the home front, uh, even in our case as Italian Americans, you know, facing some serious issues about being at war with the mother country, I think there was an overwhelming sense of duty. And I often wonder if that's something that would ever occur again here in the modern United States. I think that that's the signature emotion attached to World War II is an unquestioning duty and an unflinching commitment to seeing our country and our vision of the country through to the end. And I I think it's safe to say, I, I hope this conversation that we've had today is one that will live on for those who did not grow up like us with veterans of World War II and with the people who lived here in the home front. And uh, I hope that the conversation continues. And, you know, Peter, your, your book certainly, I think, impacted scholarship around this issue for our generation and uh, will continue in years to come. So, so thank you for it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I was very happy to do it. And so the book is going to be, uh, it's still available, obviously, now 20 years on, on Amazon. We're going to link it from our show page in the notes. So if you're listening on a podcast player, make sure to visit our website, TanyAmericanPodcast.com. And in the show notes, there's going to be a link to pick up this very important book and one that I think everybody in our audience will enjoy really thoroughly. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast on this solemn anniversary continuing thank you for the service for the men and women out there who who gave of themselves here in the home front or overseas at world war ii and if you have a veteran in your life make sure if it's available to you to go and ask questions and uh, and get the stories that you can because this is a diminishing resource unfortunately and one that we should take really seriously so i look forward to further conversations on this from all of us the italian american podcast thanks for listening and we'll see you next week Rosie, 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 the riveter. On the ocean.